Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. Well, this is the third and final part of the interview with Lise Morton, the VP of Site Selection for the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. And I think the big take home for me in this third and final part is that even if the community does say or does determine that we are willing to host a DGR, it does not necessarily mean that a DGR will be 100% guaranteed to be built here. Ultimately, how is the NWMO going to make a decision between South Bruce and Ignace? Yeah, that's a great question. So we are ultimately looking at three broad criteria. Uh, So the first and foremost one is safety. We absolutely will not proceed in either area if we cannot develop a strong safety case. So that's the entire reason for all the borehole drilling, for all of the geoscience studies, so that we can say with a fair amount of certainty, and I say it that way because there's even more characterization that would happen through an impact assessment study. So that this is just the very beginning of some of the geoscience work. But, you know, so that we understand enough about the geoscience to say, yes, this rock could safely house a repository like this. So first and foremost, safety is the first criteria. If for some reason the borehole drilling indicated that we couldn't do that, then that's a no-go. We can't even proceed with the rest of the criteria in, in that area. Uh, so safety will be the first criteria. And then the second one is transportation. We need to be able to uh, confirm that we can develop a safe and socially acceptable transportation plan in in each of the areas. Now, transportation doesn't start for a repository like this till the 2040s, but we still need to have done the planning and the framework to say, yes, we have confidence that over the next 20 years, we can develop a safe transportation plan. So those two criteria are are the, the big ones. And then the other one is willingness. So, and that goes more to your question, how are we going to make this decision? So Again, first of all, we've, we've been clear that we need willingness from both municipalities and First Nations. We're also looking for broader regional support and support of Métis communities. First and foremost would be understanding, do we have that willingness from the, the communities? Assuming everybody was willing, <laughs> let's just assume every, every community and region came back and said yes, then how would we be making that decision would be a comparative analysis between the two, the two areas on a multitude of criteria in every one of those kind of big buckets that I gave you, safety, transportation, and willingness. So we'll be looking at at all kinds of things. So what demonstration of willingness did we get from the different communities? We talk about looking for something called a compelling demonstration of willingness. What we mean by that is when the community has, assuming the community has said yes, was the question posed very clear and unambiguous? So that it's very clear that yes, the community in whichever way they decided to to, to decide this, the, the community has given us a very clear demonstration of willingness. It's not, unambig- it's not ambiguous. We'll also be looking at, you know, do we believe that the demonstration of willingness adequately represented the, a broad sector of the, the community? Uh, was there adequate involvement from the community in whichever shape, again, the, the community decides to look at that? Is there support regionally? So we'll be looking at a whole bunch of things, but we'll be doing a comparative analysis between the, the two areas. And I should point out actually another really good document if you know people have time to, to read things. There's a document on the NWO website called Moving Forward Together, and it's a 2010 document. So the site selection process was actually designed a decade ago, and we continue to follow it. 
so it lays out kind of what the next steps are and how we would make that decision. But ultimately, we will be looking at the two regions, you know, in a lot of detail and doing a comparative analysis between the two and making a decision from there. And I just want to be clear that the decision gets made by the NWMO president and CEO, ultimately. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about um, why isn't the NWMO pursuing alternate options for the fuel management? We, we see a, the only thing we really hear is, you know, uh, about the DGR. So like, why aren't we talking about recycling, reprocessing, rolling stewardship, mm-hmm. things like that? Yeah. So, I mean, again, a couple answers that I would would give on that. So first, again, a bit more of a historic perspective. So when the NWMO was formed, again, back in 2002, under the mandate of the Nuclear Fuel Waste Act, one of the first things to do was to go out and talk to Canadians about what do you want to see done with this this fuel. Uh, And so, again, all of that's detailed on the website, that kind of history. And one of the things that communities told us back then, Canadians, and this was Canadians across the country, Indigenous communities, various organizations, it was a kind of a broad spectrum of society. One of the things that they they said is, first of all, that they wanted to see that the solution would continue to be pursued now rather than later, um, and that people wanted to see a solution uh, and not push this on to future generations. They also wanted to make sure that uh, solutions would be flexible and adaptable to changes in societal expectations, changes in technology. So you sometimes hear the process called adaptive phase management. Well, the adaptive means again, acknowledging the fact that things are going to change and that we need to uh, respond to changes in society. But so again, so why are we pursuing different methods? So again, those early studies also looked at different, uh, different options and looked internationally at what different, different options are. With respect to fuel, now, if you go to the International Atomic Energy Agency documents, you will find that for other types of waste, like low-level waste in particular, there are other options. And I mentioned one earlier, like the facility down in Texas that is a shallow disposal facility for, for mostly low-level waste, although they have slightly different uh, names for, for some of that in the state. So there are different options for things like low-level waste, but when you start getting into some intermediate-level waste and certainly fuel or high-level waste, because of the radiotoxicity of this material for the length of time that you're talking about, the IAEA and the international consensus is deep disposal. You need the containment that can be provided at depth to manage this material over the lengths of time that you need to manage it. So that kind of is what drives you to deep disposal and certainly not uh, shallow disposal of fuel. But you asked another interesting question as well, which is the recycling piece and why aren't we pursuing that? Uh, So first of all, it's not within our mandate to specifically pursue it, but I would say we certainly are monitoring, when I spoke about the adaptive uh, part of our mandate, We are certainly monitoring the developments in that area all the time. There's actually a really good document on our website called uh, the Watching Brief. Uh, I think it's the Watching Brief on Advanced Fuel Cycles, I think is its official title. Um, And it gets published and refreshed routinely. And that's a really good report that that talks about what's happening internationally in this area. What what countries are reprocessing fuel, which ones aren't, uh, et cetera. So a couple comments on that. There are Uh, There is one at least small modular reactor vendor that is talking about and and pursuing the potential uh, to recycle can-do fuel. Some of the other small modular reactors don't use can-do fuel, but there is one that's looking at that. Um, And NWO certainly is monitoring what's what's happening with that. Um, And certainly, I think anybody would welcome a technology that would come in and reuse some of the can-do fuel. But I guess a couple points I would I would point out, even with reuse of fuel, which we would be more than happy to support. 
um, you, it doesn't eliminate the need for disposal. Even if you take that can-do fuel and you put it through a new reactor technology or, or whatever it might be, you would still end up with a fuel product that comes out the other end that would still need to be to be dealt with and, and disposed of in the same way. So, you know, we're absolutely keeping an eye on all of that. We're not saying that that's not an option. And the other thing too that's important to note is that assuming a facility, the repository would be built in the 2040s, the facility is then in operation for decades. And then, um, like 40 to 50 years. And then it goes through like an extensive monitoring period, we assume for 70 years, but it'll be future generations that decide if they've had done enough monitoring and if it's time to, to close the repository. But that whole time, there's the ability to go in if new technologies come along to retrieve the fuel and, and to reuse it. So there's still many, many decades in which you, you could do that. But I just really wanna point out, all of that is great. I would welcome all of that to happen but eventually you would still need to dispose of, dispose of the byproduct that would come out of those things too. So you'll still eventually need disposal. That was my understanding as well. Recycling and reprocessing doesn't eliminate the need for a DGR. It maybe postpones the need a little bit, but it doesn't eliminate the need by any means. Or it may reduce volume to some extent, and it, it, it may reduce radiotoxicity of the material to some extent, but certainly you'll still need uh, disposal. And so, and, and I mean, you can even just point to the countries that have done reprocessing. So, you know, and again, our watching brief details all of that. And, and so it's a really great document. It's a technical document, but it's, it, it, it's a good one to, to look at. So countries like France and the UK, um, you know, have done reprocessing uh, for decades. They still need disposal they actually end up with other byproducts from the reprocessing that also need to be managed. So, you know, we just need to be cautious that we understand that, that technologies still have byproducts that will come out of them that need to be managed. You talked a little bit about the international consensus being geological disposal for spent fuel, but there's this conversation going on right now about how that's not an accurate statement to make because there are no DGRs for spent fuel. So there's that question of, well, how can you say it's international best practice if nobody's practicing it yet? Can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. So I guess I, a couple comments I would make on that. So in terms of what the international community does understand really well is the characteristics of this material. There is a lot of information there, plenty of analysis over decades in terms of what fuel, what makes up fuel what the radioisotopes are in fuel or the radionuclides and how that fuel then behaves. So there's a lot of understanding of what the material is. And as a result of that as well, there's a lot of understanding of how that material needs to be managed, shielded, et cetera, to be able to protect people in the environment. We know all of that because we're, you, we're, we're having to handle that material now across the world. We're having to protect workers every day now with that material. So we do understand that very well. We understand how to keep people safe and keep the environment safe at surface now. What we also know internationally as a community is what the underground world looks like to some extent. We understand geology and we can understand from a geological perspective how rock behaves and how water movement through rock behaves. And so we do understand those things. While we may not have an operating repository internationally for fuel yet. First of all, there is one being constructed. It's being constructed as we speak in Finland. There will be an operating repository for fuel in operation uh, in the next couple of years. And so certainly we are paying close attention to that. And they've done, you know, some pilot tests. They understand what they're dealing with. 
And so we can take a lot of the lessons learned from what's been done internationally. The other thing I would point out, though, too, is that there are other deep geologic repositories in operation across the world. They may not be specifically for spent fuel, but some of them have intermediate level waste in them. And some of them have been in operation for many years, for example, in Sweden and others. Korea has one. And yes, while they may not be for fuel, intermediate level waste itself also needs containment. So we already understand what it's like to store this type of material. And I'm not trying to say, I don't want to be disingenuous and say intermediate level waste is the same as fuel. I'm not saying that. But we understand how to protect against radio, radionuclides and what that transport and containment of radionuclides look like. And we understand that underground. So, you know, we, we have to be careful here if we say, well, there's no example of this anywhere. No, there are several examples of deep repositories that have been safely constructed and operated that are holding radioactive material in them. And there's soon to be one that's got fuel in it as well. And so, and, and so I, I think there is an example out there. And of course, think of it this way too. Once NWMO has selected a site, the Finland repository will be continued. By that point, it'll be operating. We'll continue to get the lessons learned from the Finland operation and, and incorporate that into the design. So this is an ongoing adaptive, you know, if we learn important things from the, the, the Finnish experience, that'll be incorporated into the design. I always like to point out too, that there are repositories for other hazardous materials, not necessarily radioactive or, you know, the Oklo natural reactor, or, you know, there's, there's so many different examples of how, you know, this can and does work worldwide. And I guess my last question here, just to wrap up, there's this I don't want to say it's a fear, but maybe it's a concern sometimes, you know, that if the community together says, yeah, we're willing to host this, that once we say yes, that's it. We say yes, there's going to be a DGR here. There's nothing we can do about it. And I think that does make some people who maybe aren't necessarily opposed to the idea, but it still makes them a little bit hesitant because they're like, well, what if we do say yes? And then, you know, there's no way to backtrack out of this. So I guess the long way around the question is, <laughs> does the community ever get another chance, you know, to, to change their mind or to say, hey, you know what, we've actually, we're not really happy with how this is going. Yeah, so a great question. And, and, and I hear that one as well. So uh, I guess a couple comments on that. So first of all, as I said earlier, the community saying yes, and whatever way the community decides to do that, and NWMO then selecting an area, that's just the beginning of a very long process of regulatory approvals. So, and just to spell that out a little bit for people. So one of the first things that then has to happen is an application needs to go into the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada or what used to be called the Environmental Assessment Agency. So an environmental assessment or impact assessment needs to be launched. That in and of itself will go through a significant public hearing process, similar, and many people in this area will remember the OPG DGR hearings. So you'll see, I'm sure, a very similar public process in which the public can participate and the public can engage. But also NWMO will have to be applying to the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission for several licenses over the course of this. So the first one is a site preparation license, which literally just allows you to prepare the site to build roads, put an electrical supply, et cetera, et cetera. You can't even start digging a hole, if you will. You then need to apply again to this Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission for a construction license to actually be able to construct the facility. And then before you operate the facility, you need to apply to the CNSC again for an operations license. Every one of those licenses goes through a public hearing. So there are many, many times over the before ever fuel would go into the repository where the public will be able to, to be involved and abs absolutely will get engaged in that process. 
So there's still many, many more steps to, to go uh, where the community can get involved. Um, but the other piece as well I spoke to earlier, which is that I think it will be important to define what the community's role is going forward and how does the community continue to have a voice. And that's something I would anticipate that we would work with the community on and detail in what I spoke about earlier, you know, a, a partnership agreement of some sort. And that can range everything from, as I mentioned earlier, for, certainly the community will continue to have a seat at NWMO's advisory council, as is mandated under the Act. I would anticipate that you know, very likely you would end up with an ongoing community liaison committee or CLC type of a, a, of a, of a committee in operation in the community, another way in which community members can, can, can get involved. So I could see many opportunities for how community members could continue to get involved. And the other thing I would say as well is that, you know, I guess just to be clear for, for everybody, unless the project gets approval under the Impact Assessment Act, it doesn't, it doesn't happen either. So just because the community says yes doesn't mean that it's good to go. One of the very big first gates that would have to happen is that NWMO would have to, to the satisfaction of the regulators, demonstrate that we've met the requirements of the Impact Assessment Act. And that requires significant volumes of information and material to be provided to a regulator and to be scrutinized and challenged in a public forum. So, you know, there's a lot of information that would end up having to still be you know, produced and provided to a regulator to get their approval. So yeah, there are a lot of steps still to go. And I would just say, you know, absolutely, we can continue to define, to define what the community's role is, is going forward. That, that's something that I, I, would, I, would, I would encourage community members to, to want to understand. You should want to know what your, your role is going to be going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I don't, I definitely don't think that if the community were to say yes, that it's a good idea to just disengage at that point. I think if anything, that's the time to get more right. engaged. But no, I really appreciate you taking the time today to talk to me, Lisa. It's great. No problem. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this episode of Willing to Listen South Brews Proud. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me. And remember, we don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another. Mm-hmm.